0: Welcome to the Faith to You podcast. We're continuing in our series where we answer the question, I'm saved, now what? This is part 12 in Romans chapter 8. And today we're going to look at verses 28 through verse 31. And we're going to talk about the reality that no one can work against God's plan. You know, I grew up watching a TV show called The A-Team. And one, one of the moments that was iconic in that show was at the end of every single episode, the leader, Hannibal, would always say, I love it when a plan comes together. And during the show, there'd be all of these events that would transpire that would, you, you'd wonder how is this team gonna get through this? How they're gonna make it through? How are they going to be able to, to have the victory? How are they gonna come out on the other side? And, and you never know how it all come together. But it always did. And, you know, when you watch a show like that, you you know, ultimately, things are going to work out. Um, But you don't always know how. You know, it's the same in the Christian life. We know, ultimately, all things work together for good. But we don't always know how. Do you know where that comes from? Do you know where we get that idea from in Scripture? We actually get it from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says this, We know that all things work together for good, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And then it goes on, it says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is working for us, if God is the one who's going to work good, there's nothing that can stand in his way. No one can work against God's plan. Now, in Romans 8.28, there's a qualification. It doesn't say all things work together for good for everyone. It says all things work together for good for those who love God. This is not a promise to those who are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is exclusive to the body of Christ. This is exclusive to those who have confessed their sins, who have gone to Jesus for salvation, have admitted their failure, have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And those who do that, they confess Jesus as Lord. What happens is his spirit dwells inside of them and fills them with love for him. Now what Paul does is he explains who the ones who love the Lord all are. He says, it works together for good to those who love God, and then he says, those who are called according to his purpose. And what he's doing here is he's defining those who love God. How does he define them? Those who are called according to his purpose. Well what does that mean? It means you're not the one who started the relationship. You didn't go out and find God, he found you. You didn't love him first, he loved you first. That's what 1 John tells us. This is love, not that we loved him first, but that he loved us. And and what did he do because of his love for us? He opened our eyes. He opened our hearts. He gave us the faith that we needed to believe in him. It's all a gift. It's all grace. And that's what Paul goes on to explain. He defines what it means to be called according to his purpose. What does it mean to be called according to God's purpose? That's what verses 29 and 30 are about. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what does it mean, those who are called according to his purpose? Who is that talking about? It's talking about those whom God foreknew, predestined, and called. Now, what's interesting is he defines these terms. He defines those who are predestined as those who are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, God's plan was for us to be like Jesus Christ. God's plan in eternity past was for the church to look like Jesus. Jesus. That's what he's talking about. That's who the called are. Those God has destined to look like Jesus. You don't make yourself look like Jesus. It's God's purpose. It's God's plan. It's God's work. And and who is it that he predestines? He defines those as those whom he foreknew. Now, there's a a little bit of a danger with that word foreknowledge. Some people read that word and they think, oh yeah, God looked down the corridors of time and he saw me and he thought, wow, Caleb Schrader is an amazing person. I want him on my team. That's not what it says. You see, he foreknew those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, these people he foreknew are those who were not already conformed to the image of his son. Those who were in their sin and needed to be conformed, those who needed to be transformed. God foreknew you as a sinner. God doesn't look down the corridor of time and choose the best to be on his team. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he chooses the weakest. He chooses the people who are nothing. That's who he foreknew. Why Paul tells us this is so that we will stand assured that one, God is working all things together for good, and two, nothing can work against God. God wants us to be confident. You know, what's amazing to me is often when we talk about predestination, Christians lose confidence. And the reason they lose confidence when they hear the word predestination is because they're not listening to the text. They're not listening to the voice of their shepherd because their shepherd is saying, I knew you. And I still chose you. I want you to think about that for a moment. God knew you. Now, I know you. I don't know you like God does. What, What does that mean? That means I don't see your depravity. I don't see your evil thoughts. I don't see all of your failures. God does. And he still chose you. God saw all of my failures. He saw all the ways that I would fall short. He saw all the ways that I would rebel against him. In other words, he knew what he was getting into. You know, in human relationships, when you pursue a spouse and you marry them, you don't necessarily know everything about them. You don't know how they might change in the future. You don't know how they might change the way they interact with you. You don't know how they might change their view of you. God knew all of those things, and he chose us anyways. Anyways. I want you to understand that. There's no human relationship like this. We don't have foreknowledge when we get into a relationship with somebody. God does. That's a really good thing we don't have foreknowledge because you know what? I think that most of us as humans, if we had foreknowledge, would not choose to get in relationships with other humans. If we knew each other like God knows us, we would shy away from each other. But God sees us. He sees all of our deepest, darkest secrets. And you know what he does? He loves us when we're his enemies. He draws near to us and he destines us to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, it's so important that you understand that this is a choice that God made before you even existed, but it was in full comprehension of who you would be, sins, warts, and all. Ephesians 1 describes it this way, Ephesians 1, 4, for he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless, in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. God chose you before the foundation of the world. Before God created the world, he had already chosen you. What's that do to you? That's meant to bring you assurance. Don't doubt when you hear that. Let your heart be assured God chose you. If you've given your life to Jesus, it's because God chose you. Now, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, give it. (laughs) Repent. Stop resisting him. And if you haven't given your life, you're not supposed to worry about whether you're predestined or not. That's not what predestination is for. Predestination is for those of us who have repented to be confident that God is the one who opened up our eyes to see and gave us ears to hear. And what is it all for? It's all for the glory of God, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. God saved you to the praise of his glorious grace. It's by him, it's for him, it's to him, it's through him. And so who gets the glory? He does now now how is it that he predestines us how is it that god predestines us to be conformed to the image of his son romans 10:13 has the answer it says this I'm sorry, let me read from 2 Thessalonians 2.13. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 has the answer. It says this, We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what it says right here is that God called you to this. He predestined you. He called you. We see the same terminology in Romans chapter 8. But how did he do it? Through the gospel. So you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God predestined you through the gospel, through the good news. Think about that for a minute. God uses the declaration of the gospel of peace to save his people. It's so important that we understand that. It's not suddenly you wake up and you realize you want to be a believer. No, you hear the gospel. The seeds are planted and the seeds are planted by human agents using human means, using words. God predestines you. God chooses you. God saves you. God rescues you. But what does he use? People. People. He uses people as agents of that message, as proclaimers of the gospel of peace. This is why we're supposed to have our feet shod with the gospel of peace. So wherever we go, we're diffusing the fragrance of Jesus Christ who rescued us, who saved us. This is why Paul pleads in Romans ten thirteen. I mentioned that earlier. Romans 10, 13, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You know, some people hear that people are predestined to be saved, and they think, well, then why should I share the gospel? Because that's the only way they're going to get saved. Now, you might think those two things are in contradiction to each other. God is sovereign. God is powerful. And he works through ordinary means, like a person opening up their mouth, and proclaiming the gospel to somebody else. And what does Paul tell us? He says, if they don't hear, they can't get saved. That's why we need to send people. That's why we need to share the gospel. That's why we need to preach the word in season and out of season. That's why we need to declare the gospel of peace. Now understand, what we're doing is we're farmers. We're farming, we're planting, and we're watering. But do you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God uses human agents, but God is the one who affects the change. God is the one who allows the seed to go deep, to implant in the heart, and to change the individual from the inside out. God gives the growth. God gives the increase. Now this passage that we're looking at, Romans 8, 28 and 29. It's a really important passage in understanding how God saves us. As a matter of fact, this passage has what's called the golden chain of salvation. And you hear this sort of order in Romans 8, 28 and 29. It says that God foreknew, whom God foreknew he predestined, whom he predestined he called, whom he called he justified, whom he justified he glorified. And the reason that we call it a golden chain is because each link is Connected to the next, but cannot be broken. It's an unbreakable golden chain. And this is why Paul says things like, I am confident that he who began a good work in you is gonna bring it to completion. He's gonna finish what he started. That's why he says things like, I'm confident of better things concerning you. Uh, that's why Paul Peter says things like, I, I'm trying to stir you up by way of reminder. That's why John says things like, You already know these things. There's a confidence that we see in the gospel writers. Why? Because God is the one who works that salvation. God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us. Now, what does that reveal to us about salvation? It shows us salvation is God-ordained, God-orchestrated, God-ordered. And what does that mean? That means that God gets all the glory. I don't get glory. I can't say, I found God. I figured it out. I did the math, and I realized this was the conclusion I should come to. Now, here's the crazy thing is that is what's happening on my end, is I'm thinking about the gospel, I'm processing the gospel, I'm seeing God, and I'm recognizing the truth, the reality that God is glorious, that God is lovely, that God made a way for me to be saved. But I need to understand that that simple logic of the gospel is only understood by grace, is only understood because God takes blinders off my eyes, because God gives me a heart of flesh. He gives me a sensitivity to his spirit. He gives me ears to hear. The gospel is extremely logical. It's perfectly rational. But you need to understand this. Those in the world have chosen to blind themselves to the reality of the gospel. They've rejected knowledge. They've rejected God. They're dumb and blind willfully. And because of that, God turns them over, it says, to a reprobate mind, a mind that doesn't work right. Your brain works right, not because you're intelligent, but because God is gracious. And those he foreknew, he called. And those he called, he predestined. Now, There's, we've talked about those first three things, but what are the last two? Justified and glorified. What does it mean to be justified? How am I justified? Well, if you read through the book of Romans, you'll get it. You're justified by faith, by faith alone. And the example of that is Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The faith is what God uses. God uses to effect justification in my life. And the example, Abraham, what happens with him? God tells him he's going to take him out. He's going to bless all the nations through him. He tells him he's going to be a mighty nation. He says there's gonna, he's going to receive the seed blessing that God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Well, what does Abraham do when he hears that? He believes God can do that. That's what faith is. It's abject dependence upon God to keep his word. Abject dependence upon God to keep His word. That's what Abraham does. He abjectly depends upon God. How does he demonstrate that? Well, first he goes out. He leaves everything he knows, and he says, "You know what, God? I'm going to depend upon You and not myself." Now, that's that's a process in his life. That's a process of him coming to depend upon the Lord more and more. And then he he messes up. He messes up and lying about his wife. He messes up and sleeping with Hagar. But ultimately he gets to that point where he's ready to sacrifice his only begotten son on the altar because God told him to. And that's what happens with abject dependence is it grows over time. And we see that with Abraham. But when was he saved? When he looked at the stars and God said, your descendants are going to be as many. And he believed God. That's what saved him. That kind of belief. He depended on God to do what God said in his life. But what does Paul tell us? He tells us those he glorified, those he justified, he also glorified. Now what's interesting is all of these are spoken of in the past tense. God has done this in the past in your life. And what's interesting about that word glorified is it's a past, present, and future reality. What do I mean? I mean, God is glorified when he rescues you. God is glorified in your life when he rescues you. God is glorified in your life when you walk in conformity to his word and people look at you and they glorify your father who's in heaven because they know you can't do that. They know God's working through you. And then one day we're going to live with him forever in glory. We're going to receive our resurrected bodies and they're going to be glorified. So this glorified is a past, present, and future reality. And I get that from a couple of places. One place is in John 17 when Jesus is praying to his father at the end of his life. He says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. And I am glorified in them. Jesus is glorified in the church. Presently, Jesus is glorified in his church. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians three eighteen. we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul says we're being transformed from glory to glory. So we're in process. We're being conformed to his image. We're looking more and more like him every single day. That's called sanctification. And that's what's happening right now in this present reality of glory, as I'm being transformed from one image of glory to another. Now, Paul, John, talks about this in his epistle. He explains that one day we'll be fully transformed. And that day is going to happen when we see Jesus First John 3 two says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's future glory. We see him, and then we get it. Then we know that's who I am. I am in Christ. My life is hidden with God in Christ, and when we see Christ, then we'll finally be like him, fully transformed into our glorious, new, resurrected bodies. So what's what's his conclusion? I, I read to you all the way through verse 31 where it says this, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is the one who orders your salvation, if God is the one who foreknew you, chose you, he's the one who orchestrates it, if God is the one who works all things together for good to those whom he called, who can stand against you? I hope you get the answer. No one No one can stop what God is doing. God cannot be stopped. You cannot save yourself. You cannot glorify yourself. And you can't stop God from doing his work in your life. He's going to get it done to those who are called according to his purpose. You love him, not because you found him, but because he found you. He loved you first. What a glorious reality that God knew us. He knew what he was getting into and he chose us. I hope that that does what it's supposed to in your heart today. If you're a believer, it assures you. If you're not, listen to Romans 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe today is the day that you cry out to the God who saves, Lord, rescue me. And he will. Thank you for listening. God bless.